This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where this week D is for Dr. No, the OG James Bond film. The first Bond film that was kicked off the whole thing, uh, released in 1962. Uh, my name is Tom Butler, and joining me as we take a deep dive into the making of this film is a man whose courage I admire, Mr. Duffy, Brendan Duffy. Hello. And a man who thinks he's either Napoleon or God, it's Mr. Tom Wheatley. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, getting worse. Um, so, yeah, as always with our film specials, we'll be going through... The making of the film uh, in chronological order, so pre-production, development, uh, the production, the post-production, the release, uh, and we'll end the episode by ranking it against the other James Bond films that we've covered so far. This is our sixth film special, so uh, where it ranks in there, you'll find out at the very end of the episode. Um, So before we do dive into that, I asked our followers on Twitter for their three-word reviews of Dr. No. Do either of you have a three-word review of Dr. No you want to share? The first Bond. Oh, that's not really a review, is it? That's just an explanation. It's a description, isn't it? It's a very clear fact. <laughs> All right, Connery. What, uh, what, have, what have you got for From Russia with Love? The second Bond. Yes. And guess what Goldfinger's going to be? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> What's yours, Weekly? Bloody good start. Bloody good start. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's some here's some from people who follow us on Twitter. This is from Griff. He says, "Sets the standard." Pretty good. Mm, nice, yeah. Uh, Dad, Daddy-O, or Kid, Kid Creole 3, he says, sets the table, which I thought was quite nice. Mm, yep. uh, the rock and roll guy says, Bond, James Bond. Again, not quite a review, but um, I appreciate the, the message. Yep. Spy Hards, they went with genre-defining moment, which... Uh, mm, very good, yes. Yeah, yeah. Quite interesting. Uh, friend of the show, Jeremy Duns, he went with two iconic introductions. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Clamp, uh, he went with iconic, compelling, timeless, which I would agree with. Mm. Uh, the Bond Bulletin, everything or nothing, which I don't, um, I sort of get, but yeah. it's cryptic, isn't it? It's not got everything, has it? And then John Kell, um, he uh, went with improves every viewing, which is an interesting. It's one that I sort of enjoy, I think, even more every time I watch it. Mm. So... To kick things off with Dr. No, who's up first? It is me. 
talking <laughs> about the plot of Doctor No, which I was just talking to Brendan about this before you came on, Butler, and what a breath of fresh air this plot is. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, we, I, you know, we do, we did die another day, and the trying to explain that plot is like trying to talk your way through some sort of chemistry lesson. Whereas this is just so clear and simple. It's an absolute joy. Probably saved us about 10 minutes on this episode because I don't have to go into too much depth about some ridiculous convoluted storyline. So <laughs> is that, anyway. Is that why you're longing out your section? <laughs> <laughs> well, I might as well. Yeah, you're just going to say it goes to Crab Cake. That's it. You don't yeah. pay. You don't get paid per word. Get on with it. <laughs> you don't get paid the at all. Want more. The listeners expect two and a half hours of gold <laughs> babbling. Um, right, well. It's the first James Bond film. We see we see Sean Connery at the start of the film. He finds out about Strangeways, who's a British agent over in Jamaica, and his secretary. They've been killed or they've gone missing. So James Bond is assigned the simple case of finding out what happened to them. He heads over to Jamaica, where he meets up with CIA. I'm not going into too much detail here. I'm just giving you the overall plot. Uh, meets up with CIA agent Felix Leiter, as well as uh, Quarrel, who's a native fisherman semi-associate of the uh, CIA. And he finds out that Strange A's was investigating uh, Crab Key Island that uh, belongs to a mysterious Doctor No, which is also protected by armed guards. So it starts some sort of alarm bells and they think, well, this might be the, the thing that we're looking for. What's going on here? They find out that Doctor No is toppling rockets launched by NASA at Cape Canaveral. And so 007 goes to Crab Key Island, sort of hidden private island off Jamaica um, with Qu- uh, Quarrel to find out what Dr. No's doing, get some evidence against him. So when he gets there, they meet up with Honey Rider, who uh, is walking out of the sea, uh, collecting seashells. They sort of go through a process of trying to get captured. They eventually get captured. He goes, finds out about Dr. No's plot, sees his layer, and then just puts an end to the plan by sort of stopping the, I think it's a nuclear device of some sort, um, which is the sort of machine that stops these rockets. So he stops that, beats up Dr. No. That's it. Done. That's Dr. No. Very good. Very succinct. Yeah. I think most people say Strangways, but I like Strangeways. It's, um, yeah. yeah. I'm sticking with Strangeways. I've I always like- called him Strangeways. <laughs> Fair enough. I like that. Don't email uh, him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, no, no, don't email him. He knows it's Strangeways. Um, <laughs> So let's uh, have, have a little think. So Dr. No, obviously, it's the first James Bond film. So there is a certain level of expectation uh, in 1962 for this film to be made. The film, the books are selling moderately well. Cubby and Harry have, have acquired the rights to the book or the books and have, we'll come to it in a second, but decided to, to, to do um, Dr. No first. But it's obviously worth noting that the spy craze that we talked about many times in other episodes has not begun this is pre like the big boom in spy films so there were spy films being made hitchcock notably did a few but this really um was sort of considered probably a bit more of a b movie um than uh possibly the james bond films are now Uh, other films released in 1962 big films uh lawrence of arabia that won seven oscars that year to kill a mockingbird the original Cape Fear, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, um, Stanley Kubrick's Lolita, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So it's a great period for Hollywood. Some some, some classic films Fantastic coming out. Yeah, films. yeah. But this Doctor No is uh, it's a low budget um, paperback type thriller. It's um, 
I don't think, I mean, expectations were probably middling, let's say. Another uh, interesting thing about 1962, it was the year that Marilyn Monroe died of a drug overdose. So, um, yeah, not that that plays into the film in any way, I just thought I'd mention it. So, yeah, let's get on with how Harry and Cubby came into the situation for this film. So the beginnings of this as the novel, just to quickly brush on that, it, 1956, it was originally created as a screenplay by Ian Fleming for the producer called Henry Morgenthau III. And it was for a TV show called Commander Jamaica. And it was the idea was it was going to promote Jamaica. That project fell through and Ian Fleming completed the novel and then talks began about taking Bond to, to, the, to the big screen. And Ian Fleming had seen Saturday night and Sunday morning, um, which I think we've mentioned previously. Harry Saltzman film, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And so he sold Harry Saltzman all the rights for for all of the Bond novels, except Casino Royale and Thunderball for $50,000. So at this point, Saltzman's got the rights, uh, but is having trouble financing and getting anything off the ground. So we covered this in the Cubby episode. So by all means, go back to the letter B. And we've got a whole episode on Cubby Broccoli where we cover that in much more detail. But basically, Cubby wanted the rights for the novels. Wolf Mankiewicz introduced Saltzman to Cubby and he had attempted to buy them off Saltzman. And Saltzman said no and he wanted to become a partner with him instead. So they created a partnership and it created two companies. Again, we've covered this. Dan Jack, who held the rights, and Eon Productions, who would produce the films. So there was a lot of people who had major interest in, in the Bond films, in the Bond novels at this point. And United Artists were very interested. David Picker had made inquiries uh, to Universal, uh, just mentioned that he thought James Bond would be a good idea for Alfred Hitchcock. So he has a meeting with Cubby and Harry Saltzman. They set up a meeting with United Artists and they pitch the project to UA and they go for it. Because because Cubby announced that he wanted to do it with UA, and obviously the feeling was mutual, so it was a perfect deal. Both parties were interested, uh, and they hammered out the terms. It took less than an hour, so they agreed that the first Bond film would be produced for just under a million dollars. They shook hands and started work immediately. And on the 29th of June 1961, United Artists set out a press release, and it said. United Artists sets production deal with Broccoli Saltzman for filming and distribution of Fleming thrillers. And then they went on and announced that it would be a series of motion pictures. And it said the first one would be filmed with the cooperation of the British Secret Service. Difficult being, which one are they going to do first? Well, they actually wanted to do the eighth Bond novel. Thunderball is the first film. They were desperate to do that as the sort of leading Bond film. But because of the ongoing legal dispute with Kevin McClory and Ian Fleming, they obviously couldn't do that. That's the sort of accepted reasoning for them choosing Dr. No as this, as this backup one. And also there, at the same time, there was talk that Cape Canaveral was actually having problems with rockets sort of disappearing. So it was meant to be a... I don't know how true that is, but apparently it was a sort of, oh, well, this, this is a trending subject. We'll, we'll focus on this one now. But according to David Picker, uh, the issue came simply down to money because there was only a budget of 1.1 million. Thunderball was way too expensive to make for that budget. Dr. No was quite simple uh, as, a, as a story and script. So they decided that they'd do Dr. No instead because it was just more feasible to do as a, as a first film in that budget. 
And Epicus implies that the suggestion of doing Doctor No was his, and he persuaded Broccoli and Saltzman to consider doing the change. Um, but there's a lot of disputes over if that's actually true. It's like sort of a combination of different biographies and, and articles. Ultimately, I think it probably came down to simplicity of it was just the most logical film to do at the time based on the budget they had. I think also because it's set largely in Jamaica, I think there was like, because it's part oh, of the British... Yes. Uh, empire at that time that there was tax breaks and stuff uh, for shooting in jamaica and they could do a lot of uh, different locations all in that one place so and ian fleming could sit at his house <laughs> they did it <laughs> yeah um i've got some more of that actually when we get to get to to jamaica but um yeah so we knew they're doing doctor no first things first uh, i mean i don't know what order it actually happens in whether they, i'm sure it all happens at the same time but the f- first order of business obviously is finding who they're going to get to play james bond um and you, it was quite a difficult task for them they did the the whole i think we talked about a lot about this in the sean connery episode so please go back and revisit re- revisit those i'll try not to rehash too much of the same stuff but they held a competition to find a james bond um and that was sort of a bit of a publicity stunt for that and talking of David Picker, he summed it up really well in an interview. He said, all Harry and Cubby had to do was find an actor who would carry out the role of Bond and agree to options for additional films, play a suave, sexy character and would explode off the screen, become the next Clark Gable, Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart. Oh, and be English, irresistible, wear clothes well, look good in a tight bathing suit, be able to run, jump, fight, drive cars, seduce every woman he meets. And since he was being given the chance of a lifetime, be very inexpensive to hire because after all, he was being given the chance of a lifetime, which I think really sums it up, right? It's a bit of an impossible task. So one of the first people they considered was Cary Grant. And I think that was when they were considering Hitchcock. Cary Grant refused to do it. It He was going to be too expensive and we would only want to do one film. David Niven was considered, but Cubby just didn't consider him to be tough enough to play James Bond, which you've got to agree with. According to Fleming's stepson, John Morgan, Fleming wanted an actor called Edward Underwood, who actually later does get a role in Thunderball uh, a few years later. The big ones, though, the most realistic ones that comparable to Connery himself were Patrick McGowan, James Fox, who both considered it... uh, that they didn't want to do it on moral grounds. And then another people who were looked at include Robert Shaw, which I thought was quite interesting. Hmm. Terence Howard, Michael Redgrave, Richard Johnson, and Albert Finney. Albert Finney, who obviously would later come into Skyfall. But all of those were not to be because they found someone else. They did. They found Sean Connery. And again, we did... Uh... Is it two episodes we did on Sean Connery? Yeah, so we have covered this uh, in much more depth. Um, but a big advocate, j- just just to recap, a big advocate of him getting this was uh, Dana Broccoli, Cubby's wife. And she had persuaded her husband to give Connery a go. And so they arranged a meal and had a chat. And after that meal, basically he'd won them over. Uh, he never had a screen test for the film. And he turned up with a, with a rather... Most people at the meeting say he had a crumpled appearance, but he turned up and was assertive, um, put on an act, a masculine act at the meal. And uh, this, this was what really sealed the deal, apparently, is as he left and he went back to his car, this is where Saltzman and Broccoli, they watched Connery through the window and Saltzman said that he, 
He moved like a jungle cat. Uh, Cubby Broccoli also writes in his autobiography, he says, To be candid, all the British actors lacked the degree of masculinity Bond demanded. I was convinced he was the closest we could get to Fleming's superhero. We sent footage to United Artists in New York, who'd put up the $1 million. They sent back a telegram. No, keep trying. We wired back, insisting that Connery was the man we wanted, and we weren't searching any further. So they knew the man they wanted. They stuck to their guns, and it happened. And he got offered the role, and Terence Young took him under his wing and, and really shaped him into uh, what we see on, on screen. And Terence Young said, I've had a very clear idea of what an old Etonian should be. I was a Royal Guard officer during the war, and I thought I knew how Bond should behave. So I took Sean to my shirt maker, my tailor, and my shoemaker, and we filled him out. Um, and we we talked about this in the Connery episode where he got him to sleep in his suit, sl- eat, sleep, you know, live in his in his suit and become Bonds just so he could feel feel the part. So great, we've got our Bond. Well, you've already spoken about Terence Young and you've covered a few bits that sort of play into possibly why he was picked to be the director of it. Um, Terence Young directed three of the James Bond films. He, of course, did Doctor No and then did From a Shrew Bluff and did Thunderball. He'd done quite a lot of other films prior to that. Previously, he did a couple of Audrey Hepburn thrillers, Wait Until Dark and Bloodline. I don't actually know any of these films um, apart from Charles Bronson films, Cold Sweat, Red Sun and The Valachi Papers. So he was quite a big sort of, did a lot of action, did a lot of sort of thriller and espionage stuff. He, as you mentioned, he was in the war and... Because he was in the war, he speaks about this and he felt he that experience actually meant he was really good at doing rounded action sequences for men because he understood them really well and, and how they should be portrayed. Later uh, in his career, he met playwright Sherwood Anderson, um, who he learned, I don't know how much you know about this, but the sort of Doctor No is one of the first action films to sort of do this very quick format of filming. So before Doctor No, it was very common if somebody was going to a car, you'd see them walk all the way to the car, get in the car and drive off in the car. doesn't happen in Doctor No. It's very quick. It's, somebody says, I'm going here. They just disappear and then they're there. It's, it's, there's no sort of you know process of showing exactly how they got there. It's a lot quicker. And this is sort of, he learned how to do this and it's part of his directorial style that meant it worked well for what they wanted to do with, with Bond. Yeah, David Picker talks about how uh, Terence Young could have played James Bond if he when he was younger, um, which obviously played into the, the, the film and and being picked to it. Um, he had a lot of links to to the styles and the, the how Doctor No is uh, sorry, Doctor No how James Bond is portrayed on screen, which as you mentioned, Brendan, he sort of taught Sean Connery how to how to do all of that. But as well, um, a lot of the films he worked on previously uh, to Doctor No. Were he did a lot of stuff with Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, so he was already in that world. They knew him. They knew he was a very good director. They knew he did a lot of had a lot of the styles that they wanted to to use in this film style. Didn't originally get on with Ian Fleming. Took him a bit of time to sort of warm to him, and vice versa. Uh, there's quite a famous argument where they first meet, and Ian Fleming's being a bit arrogant towards him, and then uh, Terence Young sort of says back to him, "Look." I'm way more successful than you. I've won awards and stuff like that. So don't don't get on your high horse about how you want this done because I'm I'm I know more than you about this stuff. Oh, Harry Saltzman didn't want Terence either, uh, or uh, uh, to, to an extent, and nor did United Artists. And according to Cubby in his autobiography, he says it was really just him that wanted to get Terence Young in, uh, and even Fleming didn't really want him. 
so yeah, it was kind of Cubby's Cubby's decision to get Terence in. Obviously, a good decision. Terence, I've got a good quote here from Terence about the film itself. I think what's interesting about it is that he, when he took this film, didn't expect it to be that popular. He thought it was just going to be sort of a little thriller that you know he'd do and then he'd move on to something else so he said without being arrogant the style of the film was established very simply on the floor by me i knew what i wanted i didn't think the picture was going to be anywhere near as popular as it was i thought it was going to be a thing for rather highbrow tastes i thought an awful lot of the jokes were going to be in jokes but i guess it caught on very well so yeah i suppose it was just a sort of a combination of nobody really knowing what they had he was the man that sort of pulled it all together and had the experience to Put it on screen. So yeah, Terence Young, first ever director of a James Bond film. And we'll do uh, a whole episode on Terence Young when we get to the letter Y. So, uh, oh, there's plenty yeah. to talk about plenty. Terence Young, yeah. Plenty. It's going to be a long time till we talk about Terence Young again in detail. <laughs> 60, uh, 70th anniversary of the films. Yeah, so now now we've got director, we've got, we've got a bond, we need to get a script in place. So United Artists sets a budget of $40,000 for the screenplay. And Joanna Harwood who had worked with Harry for a number of years, was assigned the task of doing a script breakdown of Dr. No. In fact, she'd been assigned the task of doing summaries of all the Bond films. And the idea of doing a script breakdown is to figure out how much something would be would cost to film. So she was classed as a, as a development girl who worked in script development or a D girl. And she, yeah, like I said, would write outlines and first draft scripts so that Harry could then tout them around financiers to try and get the money raised. So that was her job with Harry. So in 1961, Harwood received a a telegram from Harry Saltzman. It's quite a famous one now. I don't know if you've probably heard this one before, but the, 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 the telegram is have concluded bond deal with United Artists production starting 15th of October. Stop urgent do screen treatment breakdown thunderball stop dr no or thunderball probably first subject stop returning to paris july 8th regards harry so that's it the bullet has been fired joanna harwood has to deliver a first draft and she wrote this first draft in paris she didn't really like the book she said it was one of fleming's less good ones and felt that he was pushing it a little bit by this point and it is it's a bit of a it's a quite a broad book um compared to some of the earlier james bond books so then wolf mankovic who is a story that uh, is a character who figures in the story of how harry met cubby he had introduced the two to each other to make them to do so that they could do the deal but on the condition that he would get the chance to write the bond script uh, a bond script so then wolf mankovic and richard maybaum started working on Joanna Harwood's script and developing it further and uh, they felt that the character of Dr. No, Dr. no was a bit ludicrous and so that led to some bizarre changes and Brendan's going to cover alternative versions of what Dr. No could have been like in a second um, so I'll leave that for him but basically the changes that Mankovic and um, Maybaum made Harry and Cubby were furious with um, and demanded more changes uh, United Artists were also not impressed with this new draft of the script and they brought in Bar- the thriller writer Barclay Mather who was hired to do an uncredited polish and that was delivered by November 1962. Mather, uh, interestingly, had written another book that passed beyond Kashmir and that had been optioned by Eon for Sean Connery to star in but that actually never got made. And this guy Bar- Barclay Mather was brought in, he was a, m- a former military man um, and Joanna Harwood thinks he was brought in to add some masculinity to the dialogue but 
Harry didn't like this draft of the script because he felt like all the characters spoke like Chicago hitmen. So then Maybaum and Mankiewicz went back, did another draft in December 1962. Um, and then this is where the budget came from, from this script. And bearing in mind they're about to start shooting in January. So it was very down to the wire with this script. So Terence Young, then when he came on board, he then worked very closely with Joanna Harwood to give it a final polish to put the script together. Um, working together at the Dorchester Hotel. And it was this final script, the Young Harwood draft that was dated 1962, is the one that everyone is considered to be the one they shoot with. Um, and we're having some a guest on next episode who'll, who'll come on and speak a bit about Joanna Harwood and her input in the Bond film. So keep an, a, a, an ear out for that one. Yeah, so like Tom said, uh, Richard Maybaum, Wolf Mankiewicz, they they thought the the villain in in the script was ridiculous too preposterous so brace yourself (laughs) they created a new villain who had a pet monkey and so this guy was called buckfield and the title character dr no was going to be the monkey so what are your two thoughts on this brilliant i love it (laughs) (laughs) was this suggestion that the monkey's calling the shots or is it that just that the monkey that's the monkey's nickname I think the monkey's the, the 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 one that's in charge, isn't he? Well, there's yeah, there's. I mean, that's a rumor as well. There's one where the monkey is actually it, it, it is in charge, but there's also this one, which is uh, it's just you know the the monkey's called Doctor No, and it's the pet monkey I, of the the main villain. I just hope they revisit that in a future Bond film and do it. <laughs> Well, I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah, I think everything is everything is on the on the table now. I think um, <laughs> I'll take anything. I'll take anything. But at this point, obviously, it's the first one. Cubby Broccoli, he's not a fan of this. He goes absolutely crazy about it. You know, all the money and the effort they've spent on getting these rights and get, you know getting it getting it green lit, and they're getting rid of Ian Fleming's story and. It's, they've made Dr. Noah Monkey. Broccoli just said to the pair, look, I'm a great believer in not tampering with an original winner. Um, and that's what he wrote in his autobiography. And, you know, it, it's good that he saw sense, I guess. Because, He's always the sense of reason, isn't he? Yeah, because I doubt we'd be doing uh, an A to Z of James Bond if uh, if it was if Dr. Noah was a monkey of, of any sort, really. I'd just, still like to do that episode. <laughs> there's also an alternative ending which you can see in, in the actual film honey riders tied up and she's uh there's water pouring in she was actually meant to be attacked by land crabs they uh were meant to be trying to attack her if you look on the dvd extras you can see uh production stills uh of the, uh, the crabs and everything so that is one thing that's quite jarring at the end of it when you, you go well why have they just tied her up on a on a ramp it's a slow way of sort of drowning somebody, isn't it? But it was that's because originally it was meant to be crabs. I mean, are, are crabs gonna gonna kill her as well? I've never heard of crabs as a sort of scary animal. <laughs> I've never, I've definitely never seen it used unless it's in a Godzilla film. <laughs> so they actually that was actually cut whilst uh, whilst in production. Anyway, they shot it, realised it wasn't going to work. They were far too slow to be menacing, um, and so took the crabs away. I, yeah, I read a story that when they brought the crabs to set, they were too cold. They'd been brought in cold storage. And so they tried to heat them up, but ended up steaming them and cooking oh, all they the crabs. 
incredible. <laughs> so everyone went home with a steamed crab that day. Um, but I don't know how true that is. Uh, I thought it was a funny story. <laughs> oh, right, I hope that's, that's a true. Fantastic, uh, <laughs> bit of work. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the, the crew who worked on the film. And this is interesting because it's... Normally, when you look at the crew on these films, you kind of say, well, they've done these films before and they've come back for this. This is the first film. So this is sort of the assembling of the the main people. That, and, and pretty much all of them go on to do at least another Bond film. And many of them go on to do loads of them. Um, so you talked about the screenwriters. Cinematography was by Ted Moore. And I'm not going to go into depth with any of these because we're going to do episodes on every single one of these and have done on some. If you want to find out more about these people, then please go to the other episodes. Peter Hunt edited the film and I think it's very well edited actually especially for a first film yeah and Monty Norman did the music we won't go into that until a little bit later but it's the only credit you'll see for Monty Norman doing the music art direction Ken Adam obviously first Ken Adam film first James Bond film mm. set the set the tone set the style for many many Bond films to come and some of the stories behind Ken Adam's sets are fantastic but I think I probably prefer the ones in this and we'll talk about those in a bit when we go through the sort of production locations but uh, and then also Sid Kane who was who was doing he was uncredited doing some additional art direction but obviously we'll hear more from him in the future uh, Bob Simmons comes in stunt arranger uh, as well as stunt doubles I'm not sure he did those four I couldn't find out who he was stunt double for and John Barry came in as music arranger more about that in a bit and then obviously Morris Binder does the main title design, his first title design that then goes on and develops quite substantially over the next few films. Well, Bob Simmons famously is the man in the gun barrel sequence in Doctor No. For the, uh, for the first oh, three. Yes, well, there you go. First three, yeah, yeah. Needs a credit for that, surely. Yeah, yeah. you thought so, wouldn't you? He's also in, it's the only Bond film, I saw. I watched it yesterday, and the final sort of, they have really short credits at the end of Doctor No, but they show the gun barrel there's a still with Bob Simmons in it at the sort of top of the credit scenes, which is very strange. Never, never revisited that style, but mm. yeah, it's definitely an interesting one to, to spot at the end. So let's have a look at the cast then. So we've got Bond's allies, which again, this is the one which sets the template, right? For forever, forevermore. So we've got Moneypenny and the character of Moneypenny in Dr. No is, an, they basically amalgamated Bond's secretary, Luelia Ponsonby and M secretary, Money Penny into one sort of character because Money Penny in the books is a bit more austere and doesn't really float with Bond, whereas Ponsonby does. So it sort of was an amalgam of that. And so they cast Lois Maxwell, and we will cover Lois Maxwell in great detail when we get to the letter M and Money Penny as well when we get to the letter M. So uh, won't do too much on her, but basically she had was basically desperate for work at the time because her husband had had a coronary. Um, in 1961 so she called around some people in the industry that she knew people included Terence Young and Cubby and said that look I need a job I need to support my family and funnily enough they had this film on the on the books they offered her Sylvia Trench or Money Penny and she chose to take the role of Money Penny because she felt she didn't have the legs to play Sylvia Trench <laughs> so it was quite yeah, a good choice she made the right choice on that one yeah yeah Bernard Lee obviously came in he was a Warwick film regular from Cubby's uh, old company uh, he was cast as M and obviously would play the role many, many, many times after that. Um, and apparently he signed on to Dr. No just the day before they were due to shoot the scenes that he's in with Moneypenny. So um, 
quite amazing, really. And again, we'll cover him in great detail when we get to the letter M. Peter Burton was uh, Major Boothroyd. He's the armourer who gives Walt, uh, Bond his Walter PPK. Felix Leiter is played by Jack Lord. And again, we'll cover these people in their own episodes later. But he became, he was a fairly big name at the time, I think. And then would obviously fame, find great fame in Hawaii Five O. And then as Quarrel, Bond's ally in Jamaica, that was played by an American actor called John Kitzmiller. And he was the first black actor to win the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Actor in 1956 for a film, a Slovenian film called Valley of Peace, which I thought was quite interesting. Yes. And who else is in the, in the cast? So you've got the Bond women. Again, we will definitely cover Honey Rider, the first Bond girl. So many people were considered for this. Julie Christie was considered, but she wasn't voluptuous enough. Uh, Martine Bezik, who obviously goes on to uh, appear in From Russia With Love and Thunderball. Gabriella Lissudi was also rejected. She was too young, but she appeared in Casino Royale 67. But just two weeks before filming, so there's a little pattern here. You see they're sort of cobbling it together pretty quickly, aren't they? They chose Ursula Andress because they'd seen a picture of a... And it taken by her husband at the time, John Derrick. This is in the documentary of, um, is it called Inside Doctor No? Yeah. So it's quite a famous picture. And yeah, so they had to dub her. We will cover this in, in much more detail. But yeah, it, she was redubbed by Nikki van der Zyl because her, her Swiss-German accent was just far too strong. Also, uh, Sylvia Trench, Eunice Gayson. Now, it was planned that Sylvia Trench was going to be a recurring character and it would be a gag throughout Bond that it's all uh, that their liaisons are always disturbed by him going away for a mission. And you see that in Doctor No and from Russia Would Love. But then as we get to Goldfinger, Guy Hamilton decides to drop it, which is a shame. I do like the character of Sylvia Trench. So, yeah, very distinctive, isn't she? Mm. She's yeah. great. I always think that with Sylvia Trench, it's like, She's the character they try to get to in a lot of later ones where she's almost like on a par with him and she can play ahead of him and she's very assertive. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Pretty smart. She's she's almost like a you know, a prototype. Yeah, that'll do. For Bond. And it works really well and they, do, yeah. they kind of lose that, which I think is a bit sad. Mm. Uh Zayna Marshall as Miss Tarot. She's the secretary at the government house in Kingston. But she's a double agent. She's working for Doctor No. So she described her role as this attractive little siren. And at the same time, I was a spy, a bad woman. Um, Terence Young had asked her to play not as Chinese, but mid-Atlantic woman who men dream about, but is not real. So, yeah, she was originally going to be played by Marguerite Le Lavaz. Is it Lavaz? No idea. But she, she goes plays- on... The cam- camera woman, is that right? Yes, she yes, does. Yeah. yeah, but she rejected playing Miss Tarot because she said it included being wrapped in a towel, lying in a bed, kissing a strange man. So she turned it down. But she went on to star in the film anyway. So yeah, we're going to need some some bad guys. Yeah, but not many of them. It's a pretty lean cast when it comes to, to villains in this film. The And there's, it's, the villains have a sort of... This, obviously, this is a very old film, and there's a little bit of uh, questionable casting for, mm. for some of the villains. Obviously, Joseph Wiseman plays Dr. No who is fantastic villain, I think. I mean, problematic casting aside, he is a very 
sort of scary villain from the start. He they use the same principle as Blofeld, where you don't see him for a bit, and he's very menacing. But he, I think he is still even a bit menacing when you, you see him. He's probably one of the scariest of the. the well, he, he does it without blinking, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Uh, and I think that was it. he very still and very sort of mannered. But he are problematic because he's a white man, and they've done him up like an, uh, a half Chinese man. That's that's the yeah. I yeah. mean, he is half Asian, right? In in, in Doctor No is isn't he? He's half, yes, he's actually yeah. He's half Chinese, but the actor but the actor, but the actor, but the actor isn't, so yeah. it's not quite quite there. Um, um, there's actually one scene I watched it yesterday. It's already it's a really subtle scene, but it's very funny. Um, he when he's sat at the table with with Connery and they're having a sort of dialogue and gets up. He, the chair's behind him and then he sort of flicks his bum out to knock the chair out. It's a very odd little camp move, which I, I'm sure can't have been scripted because it looks so out of place. Check that out because, uh, yeah, it's a very strange little move that he does and wouldn't, wouldn't expect a major villain to do that. Um, but apparently Dr. No, uh, Ian Fleming, actually wanted Noel Coward, who was a big friend of his, to play Dr. No originally, and also his step-cousin, Christopher Lee, for the role. But they eventually fell on um, Joseph Wiseman. Uh, as well as Dr. No, you've got Professor Dent, who's uh, played by Anthony Dawson, who, of course, goes on to play the unseen Blofeld in the next film. And I think he's really good. I think he's a very sort of... It, he's, a, he's, a, he's a villain that plays into the menacing qualities of Dr. No. He's very scared of him, but he's also scary for that fact. Like, he has to try... I mean, he's useless. His way... His, <laughs> they're, they're absolutely pathetic at killing Bond for quite a very, quite a long period of the film to the point where, well, we'll talk about the spider scene probably later, but what a pathetic way to kill a man when he's already in bed. <laughs> um, but as Anthony Dawson, you've got the three blind mice who I think are interesting characters. It's definitely not a style that's probably been replicated in any Bond film after, but they sort of open the film, the three blind mice, and they I like the fact that they don't really, they're such big characters in it, but they don't really have it. They're not really characters in it. They're just tools. Yeah. You've talked about Miss Tarot, played by Zena Marshall. Again, problematic casting. And then the only other guy I've got in the film of note is Mr. Jones, and he's played by Reginald Carter. He's the car driver who picks him up from the airport. But also, I spotted this yesterday just by seeing him walk past the screen. Sandor's in it, who's in uh, Spy Love Me. Yes. And he's Casino Royale. He's played by. Milton Reed, really big, yeah. sort of big, big actor from uh, that that period of time. So he plays a henchman of uh, Doctor No in his lair, and also, of course, we've got Anthony Chin, who plays sort of a random lab assistant. Who's we did in this C for Chin, didn't we? He, he, he's been in quite a lot of James Bond films, hasn't he? Mm. Yeah, but all in all, there's not really. I, I've, I'll mention this probably later in the reviews section but there was a lot of response saying that it really needed a sort of better henchman because there's not really a henchman in it it's a little bit lean on that count but i think the film's good for that i think it's i like that sort of the learning how to do it and it's, it doesn't make doctor know any less menacing no so they're, so they're your villains right so Onto production, and the film is largely set in Jamaica, so that's the first port of call. It's the film eventually gets shot in in Jamaica and at, at Pinewood. So they've got this one million dollar budget. Terence Young, Ken Adam, and Cubby and Harry go to Jamaica to look for locations, and of course, Jamaica is where Ian Fleming created James Bond at his home in Goldeneye. Fleming at this time does still live there as well. One of Fleming's friends, uh, a guy called Chris Blackwell, who is of the Cross and Blackwell family, 
and later becomes the owner of GoldenEye himself. He was hired by the shoot to be a location manager and sort of just a local fixer because he knew Jamaica very well himself. Cubby and Harry chartered a whole plane to fly the team out to Jamaica uh, on the 14th of January in 1962. And apparently it was just like a big showbiz party on the on the flight over. So you'd love to have been a fly on the wall there, wouldn't you? The cast and the crew uh, hold up in a hotel called Courtley Manor Hotel in Jamaica, New Kingston. And actually they used the hotel itself for a couple of scenes as well. And so then on the, 19, on the 16th of January 1962, Dr. No officially began shooting at the Palisados Airport in Kingston, uh, which is now the Norman Manley International Airport. Uh, and the very first shot in the can on Dr. No was James Bond in a phone booth staring at the chauffeur who James Bond has just learned is working with the enemy. So, you know, the shot. Mm-hmm. And this is quite funny. I was reading this in the book Goldeneye by Matthew Parker. Uh, he said that the local paper, the Daily Gleaner in Jamaica, they wrote about that. They went to see the filming happening because obviously it's a big deal. James Bond's coming to Jamaica, blah, blah, blah. They went down to see it and wrote, if the first day's shooting was any indication of the quality of the finished product, Dr. No promises to be a slapdash and rather regrettable picture. So apparently on this first day of shooting, it was there was like continuity issues that was ruining things. People walking past with suitcases that didn't have suitcases and then being in shot with hats and then not having hats and all sorts of stuff. And, and the reporter also said that the dialogue was appalling. So uh, it's quite, uh, that was quite interesting. Uh, lots of locals in Jamaica were given parts in the film. Obviously, Ian Fleming knew a lot of people and so was willing to sort of do a few favours here and there, as did Chris Blackwell. And one person was an actor called Timothy Moxon, who had moved to Jamaica to become a crop duster. And uh, knowing that he was an actor, Terence Young offered him the part. Uh, also, knowing that he was friends with Fleming, they offered him the part of Strangways, or as Wheatley says, Strangeways. So then... I'm sticking with it. <laughs> they filmed all over uh, Jamaica, covering the scene set there and obviously and also on the fictional Crab Key Island. The opening scenes uh, with the Three Blind Mice shot in Kingston. Strangway's cottage, uh, where the secretary's killed and Bond later picks up a clue, was at the foothills of the Blue Mountains. It's a place called K- uh, on Kinsale Street. There were some issues with filming in official um, locations in Jamaica. So they wanted to shoot at King's House, like a government building in Jamaica. But because of the way that Ian Fleming had written about the local government in Dr. No, they were offended and they they thought it was offensive against them. Uh, He basically wrote about them being sort of ineffectual and what have you. So they refused permission to do that. But they did, I think they shot a government house. We were able to shoot the, exter- shoot the exteriors there, but they just had to recreate it at Pinewood afterwards, um, later down the line. Uh, the waterfront where Bond searches out Quarrel is Morgan's Harbour near Port Royal. Uh, Miss Tarot's bungalow uh, is a villa at the Grand Lido San Susi Hotel, which is at the foothills of the Blue Mountains. The waterfalls outside a place called Ocho Rioche uh, play was Crabkey Shore where Bond and Quarrel arrive. Doctor No's mine on Crabkey is a real mine, and that was again on near Ocho Rios. And the mangrove swamp where the Dragon Tank captures Bond and Honey is in Falmouth, which is forty miles to the west. They also shot in a the, the car chase was shot on a private bit of land as well near um I think it was a mine as well. So then famously, the beach where Honey Rider ri- rises from the waves is a place called Laughing Waters. 
which is now one of um, Jamaica's. I think it's it's very very popular with tourists. Um, I think I've never been to Jamaica. Have you? No, no, no. Love no, to, love to. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really Jamaica really comes across on the screen, right? It feels very exotic. Mm. It feels of a, of another time. That it, if they'd shot it anywhere else, you would have just tell, top, been able to tell it was it was somewhere else. Um, but yeah, that's it, Jamaica. And the the other great thing about Jamaica is because a lot of it's on the beach, it means it doesn't date, you know, because it's a be- it's the sea, it's the beach. Not like Diamonds Are Forever, which we covered, that dates it badly, whereas this is a natural setting uh, and it really, it's it's better for that. I never thought of that. It's, yeah. probably, it's probably a thing that you could say about the whole film because it's so lean and there's lot not mm-hmm. a lot going into it. Yeah. A lot of the film ages really well because it is. There's not a lot to it. There's people wearing suits. There's people in swimming costumes. It's it's all very um, yeah. It still works really well. When I was watching it yesterday, I was just thinking this just times really well. It just still looks nice. There's nothing that you look at and go, well, that doesn't fit very well. Yeah, there's no and, dodgy outfits or flares or anything. Obviously, there are some dodgy outfits throughout James Bond, but um. I think I think the style. I mean, yeah, the henchman stuff's a bit ridiculous but they're henchmen you kind of forgive it but the stuff that like bond and the main characters wear it's sort of timeless clothing it's always been cool it's not yeah. some stupid outfit that roger moore would wear with enormous lapels yeah but yeah exactly I think there's a lot of that in the film i think it's the simplicity really does pay to the, the sets so one of the obvious uh benefits of them shooting in jamaica is it means the author can visit the set and he does so twice he meets up with them when they get to St. Anne's Bay and that's at Laughing Water to shoot that memorable scene, Honey Rider coming out of the sea. So that was literally down the beach from Goldeneye. And so Fleming visited with um, friends and neighbours. Noel Coward, he turned up with Noel Coward there. And Stephen Spender and a journalist called Peter Quennell. Quennell? Quennell. Yeah, he's a regular friend of Fleming's, isn't he? I think he features quite a lot in his story. And there's some great pictures of this this set visit of um, him with Connery and Ursula Andress. But he also spent he spent quite a bit of time with Connery, giving him tips and advising him on the character of Bond. So yeah, iconic, some iconic photos there. And then later on in the shoot, they'd gone to Falmouth, and they were doing the the scene where they're all hiding behind the the sandbanks when they're getting shot at. And I think this is the one where. They're, do, they're they're going for a take, yes. and there's some people in the shot, isn't there? And yes. Terence Young is like, "What is going? Get what's going on?" He gets really angry with these people, and they continue to shoot. And then they shout. He shouts, "Cut!" And he goes and finds out who it is, and it's it's Ian Fleming, um, who's disrupting the shot. I've heard an alternative version of this story, which is that he, he sees people in the distance. And Terence Young goes, "Get those people to lay down, and I'll get my shot." <laughs> So the people lay down and they go and check them out 30 minutes later and it's Fleming and his friends and they've just been Still laying, lying down. down for 30 minutes on the floor, <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, so, yeah, that, it's, it's good that Fleming got a chance to, to see it brought to life. But that actual scene, just a, as a side note, had to be reshot because they, there was some American sales, sailors were alerted by the sound of, of gunfire. And so they, they rushed to the scene. They wanted to know what was going on, obviously. You know, they didn't know it was just for a film. I think um, Fleming was quite taken with Ursula Andress and um, I think they spent a lot of time together. I think she says they, that they she did. spent um, more time with him than the producers while she was there. Um, and then later he puts her into one of his books. Yep. 
but yeah, it's quite interesting. But in, and in terms of uh, Connery, he also he to begin with he wasn't a fan of the casting of Connery, but he saw his portrayal of his character, and then he that's where he writes in that um, Scottish the, ancestry, the yeah. Scottish ancestry, yeah. Well, I was going to talk about the. Actually, I'm just coming out the ways, but you've covered most of the information about that. Uh, shot at Laughing Water, the Nog Coward. There's a chap called Stephen Spender. There's a journalist called Peter Quennell. Uh, and Ian Fleming all watching her come out. Iconic scene used at least, well, it's probably copied multiple times, but very, very obviously twice in both Die Another Day and Casino Royale. But yeah, it's just a fantastic scene and very, very... Like the rest of this film, very simple, but very, very iconic. Didn't she um, tear her knee open? Yes. Coral. It was, yeah, or her ankle or something. Yeah, when she was running yeah. on the beach. I think it was... Yeah, and they had to patch it up, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And also something I read about her as well is that she arrived on set later, like a week or two later than the rest of the cast. And so she was really pale and she was supposed to be an islander. So they basically had to cover her in um, a fake tan every day. Yeah. And there was this story that she would have to strip naked in the morning, get covered in fake tan at the hotel. And the hotel just every morning, they just kept to be more more and more people coming in to deliver things to the room while she was having it done. Because they all wanted to see her getting a fake tan, having a fake tan put on, um, which I thought yeah. was uh, quite funny. I read something interesting about Sir Anderson, the casting behind her, where that they, when they were casting for the first, and she's, like the first Bond girl. There are other Bond women in this film, but she's really the first time they probably thought about the, the concept. But they they weren't trying to cast actors at the time. They weren't. They didn't want like a known um, actor. They didn't want women that people already had a sort of knowledge of or an understanding of. They wanted to have. They wanted to create women that when that didn't exist in reality. You didn't know who they were. They were just beautiful, and they just popped into the plot. And that was it. That was they, like nowadays. Obviously, they don't do that. They bring in famous actors in all the latest films. But back in those days, it was purely about just getting some sort of un, unreal female talent in the film, so people could just ogle them and just go, "Wow, they're absolutely amazing." I, I don't know about you, but I, I'll talk about it now because probably not going to go into Ursula Andress too much later on in this episode. But I do find her character a little bit problematic in this early scene. In, in terms of like taboos and stuff in across the Bond series, especially the early ones, I think Doctor Knows actually is is it's fairly he's not too violent. He's not doing things that in later films you'd probably go don't really like that. But the weird thing I find about Ursula Andress is the discussion they have just after this scene where she's talking about how she's read an encyclopedia and that's the only knowledge that she's got of the world. But she sounds like a like a child when she's explaining it. She mm. says, "Oh, I've read I've read to D, or no T, or something like that, and I bet I know more than you." And I always find that scene a bit problematic because she's almost like it feels like she's just like a child that doesn't really know what she's doing. Uh, and I never really picked up on it until yesterday. But I do think she's a bit of a problematic character for that. And and later on, she does a few things that I think are a little bit like she's not really an adult. She's just sort of a. Mm. I think that comes weird, from the child. Yeah, that comes from the source novel. I think because I think in her in the book, wasn't she raised by her nanny in a great house and the fam the, the family had left and the house had crumbled and it was just she was just raised by her nanny and I think I think that's right. But um, yeah, in the film she goes on about traveling around different places for a 
shell collecting shells. father, doesn't oh, she? Oh, is that right? Okay, maybe I've got to mix yeah. up with another character Around the world, then. Yeah. And she can't go to school. She just collects shells all the time. Right. But it's a, it's a sort of relationship that Bond has with her that seems very odd because he doesn't have anything to talk to her about. Yeah. He just kind of like protects this odd little woman. But mm. yeah, I just picked up on that yesterday. And to me, I was just to mention about the Ursula Andress emerging from the sea. I think she made her own bikini. Ah, uh, yes. With the yes, costume she was involved designer. in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was great, because at the time, those bi- bikinis were very rare at the time. You didn't see them in films. Yeah. So this was like a, I think they were sort of high fashion. You might see them in certain European countries, but nobody, you'd never go cinema and see a load of people in bikinis. It just wouldn't happen because it was just, at that time, nobody wore bikinis. So it was a very big deal at the time that that, that's why it was so uh, impactful because people just didn't expect it. And perhaps why when Jinx comes out of the sea in a bikini, you kind of go, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I also read that when they did this scene that, that it was the, it was the, when they shot this scene, they realized they were working on something that was actually going to do. Okay. It like, like it was like, finally, yeah, this actually could be quite good. But yeah. So after Jamaica, they go back to Pinewood I mean, say back to Pinewood. They go to Pinewood to shoot interiors on the on the sound stages there. So they left Jamaica on the 23rd of February. So they'd only been there like six weeks. Um, and it had actually been a really tough shoot by all accounts. They had bad weather, thunderstorms. They had problems with the local crews, people turning up late, equipment turning up late. And apparently the film, by the time they left there, was over budget. And actually, they hadn't even achieved all the shots that they were hoping to, hence why they had to do a lot more at Pinewood than they thought they would. So Bond's first big appearance in the film is at the Les Ambassadeurs, the the club in uh, Hamilton Place off Park Lane in Mayfair. And this is the big casino uh, introduction. And so the they filmed on location for the exterior, but the interior was a full Ken Adams set. And famously, Connery was very nervous on the day because he sort of was aware that it was going to be an iconic moment. So in an interview a few years back, Eunice Gason uh, said, I'd known Sean for years and I'd never seen him so nervous as he was on that day because of all these delays. He had to say Bond, James Bond, but he came out with all of the permutations like Sean Bond, James Connery and Terence Young just called cut. Terence told me to take him away for a drink, even though he was meant to be on the wagon. So I took him off for a drink or two and he came back to set and said Bond, James Bond. It was so wonderful. And the day took off from that moment. He was just so relaxed. And the scene obviously is very, very famous in, in, in and is repeated in sort of other Bond films in that he's shown in uh, silhouette. It's He's shown in piece, piece by piece. And then it's the famous, like the clicking of the lighter and then the exhaling of the smoke and then saying the name. And Terence Young said that that way that to introduce Bond had been inspired by a film in uh, a scene in a 1939 film called Juarez. And it was the the scene in which Paul Mooney's character is introduced from behind and in profile. So that's where that comes from. Haven't been able to watch this film because I can't find it online, but it uh, sounds quite interesting. Hmm. So then a ton of other interior sequences had to be prepared on sets at Pinewood, including some of the stuff they meant to get in Jamaica. Um, and that includes, like I said before, the King's Club, Dr. No's Lair, and then obviously the cell-like room that Professor Dent receives the spider and the orders from, that famous Ken Adam set that we talked about at length in the Ken Adam episode. 
that was that was a bunch of pinewood but obviously there's a few other sort of iconic scenes to talk about as well yeah i mean the other massively iconic scene is the you've had your six which when when you you know look at clips of dr no it's it's this there's three isn't there's three big ones and this is one of them and yeah so there was actually three versions of of that scene that were written so the first one Dent fires an empty gun and then Bond shoots him dead. The second, Dent fires at Bond, misses, and then Bond fires in retaliation. And the third, Bond shoots Dent before Dent could get to his gun. Um, And they went for the first option, which was actually problematic at the time because it's not in the, the original novel. And fans of the novel, they protested and they said that the literary literary version of Bond is not cold-hearted. It's out of character. It's not what he does, uh, despite the fact he's an assassin. Uh, he just wouldn't have done it like that. I I mean, it's it's easy to look back now, and I disagree massively with what they're saying because this it sums up Bond perfectly in in what pff, a minute. It's got sixty seconds, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that scene, just the, just the way the way he does it. Um, the the tension that's in there as well, and he's just so cool. He's calm. He knows what he's doing. He's, he's ruthless. in control. Yeah, it's, it's it's fantastic. And then we move on to the big finale, the Doctor Knows Layer in Pymud, which is the first sort of large scale Ken Adams set that um, he he was part of as the whole Bond series. It's sort of it's you can see it's the beginning of his vision as he goes on to do the future Bond films, it's sort of lower key than what we've come to expect from all of it because of the budgets. They didn't have as much budget. They didn't have as much space to do stuff in there. It's a fantastic set though. It looks really good. And he did, he did a mix of this sort of new modern metallic design, but also with a lot of antique furniture, which is something he kind of goes back to in, in future Bond films with a lot of the, the, a lot of the villains, which I think adds a nice little dimension to the characters in that they have this sort of taste for, fine things but also they've got this amazing base that does all these sort of phenomenal war-based activities and he talks a lot about that set and that they didn't have a lot of money on this film and one of the most interesting things he talks about is the fish tank the fish tank uh, <laughs> fish tank which is absolutely phenomenal yeah uh, he's got they've got this fish tank in the in the in the set and it, it's not actually got fish in it it's a projector uh, as a film projected onto a, a back scene. Um, that originally he was expecting the film to be of like sharks, but when they sent the film over it, it was just a goldfish. Um, and when they projected it onto the screen, it, they just look massive, yeah. like these massive goldfish, which aren't scary. They, they just look weird. Um, so in fact, they had to add in an extra bit of dialogue into the script where he explains why he's got magnifying glass on there. Just so it doesn't look so stupid. Fantastic bit of it's something that he he says uh, that he learned a lot of things on this film that he then didn't make the same mistakes again in in future films based on the sort of production costs. But also he says that the money on the the, the future films meant that he could do a lot more with it. But yeah, it's it's a really nice set. It is it's sort of when you watch it after all the other Bond films, it's a little bit underwhelming in some bits. I mean, there's a in the room, there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot going on. Dr. No seems to be an awful lot of work for a man that is in charge of this um, 
this whole uh, base, but it's because they didn't have any money for it and it looks fantastic. But I still think that that prison set, uh, not prison, the, the cell that um, Professor Dent in is the best thing mm. that Adam did in this film, which is also was done because he didn't have any money and it looks absolutely fantastic. And I wrote some notes down yesterday when I was watching it and there's this sort of combination of cinematography and lighting in that film. But when Dr. No's talking to Professor Dent in that set, that fantastically empty set, which would then they, it, which was never meant to be like that. It was always meant to, they planned for it to be amazing and it, they didn't have any money. And they go on to use that later on in a lot of films where they've got this sort of one chair in a room and the rest of it's empty. Look at even Casino Royale, they use it. Um, but that's that. there's a scene in that where Doctor is talking and he's, there's a slow zoom that just goes on and on to Professor Dent's head as he's getting more and more stressed by what Professor Dent's saying. And it's a fantastic combination of set design and camera work. It's mm. it's just, um, it's probably goes down as my favourite Bond moments, actually. Very nice. Mm. 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 So, now they've wrapped the film and now they can move into post-production. And obviously one of the first things we like to talk about in this section is the titles and... The film, the the shooting came to an end on the 30th of March in 1962. So they had six months for post-production to edit and score and then and then obviously get the film out. And they, uh, Harry and Cubby hired uh, Morris Binder. And we talked about Morris Binder um, on the B many, many moons ago. And that was, um, he was hired after they saw the titles for Stanley Donan's The, Gr- the Grass is Greener. And I watched these the other day and it's quite a funny title scene sequence in that it shows the actors and then it's got babies sort of representing the actors um, and they're sort of like playing around. And it's a really fun, joyful way of opening a film. And so they just thought we need something that's as visually exciting as this to open the film to get really pe- people really hooked. So Morris Binder was hired um, and the titles open. Uh, I always forget this, but with that weird like electronic like static sound um, mm. before the music comes in and that's because of the theme of the film being technology being used to, to bring down satellites so morris binder um, found the audio effects after reading about a little old lady in surrey who'd been doing experiments with electronic sounds that lady was a, someone called daphne oram who is considered quite a pioneer in the world of electronic um, um, sounds and sound effects so then you've got the gun barrel and we'll do that more on that in a second. And then we've got the moving dots, which is iconic and will be revisited at other times in future James Bond films. But the dots are price stickers that uh, that Morris Binder you found and used. They were all white. And then when he shot them, they then they painted it afterwards to create that um, the, the sequence of, of, of the colored dots. Um, he'd actually done something similar in the trailer for Doctor No, which he'd also worked on. And it was a similar, it had blue dots appearing at the sound of gunshots. So he took that idea from the trailer and moved it into the into the film itself. He'd also wanted to have the silhouettes of the dancers because it moves on from the dots to the silhouettes of the dancers. And he wanted the silhouettes to be animated, but there so that they wouldn't contrast too much with the animated dots but that was proving to be too time consuming so what they did was they shot the dancers on high contrast black and white film and then the prints were then painted by the special effects department at technicolor and then they've got the animation with the uh, price with the price stickers 
um, and then this, uh, merging into the three blind mice um, segment as well. It's a it's a really it's it, some of it's really nice. It looks I love the dots and um, the combination of the music, but it's a very messy sequence. Like the music like stops because the song finishes and it starts again, mm. and then it goes on to the other song. It's just very strange series of almost unconnected music and imagery yeah um, it's a very, but I, I love it for that it's a bizarre but it, it, it is a bizarre sequence but it does really set the template for the future as well you've got the dancing women you've got the um yeah. pioneering uh, visuals all that sort of stuff which really comes into its own when robert brown john comes in for goldfinger um uh, sorry from from russia with love who then takes it onto another another level doesn't he um, so that's it. Yeah. Then obviously, Brendan, I gave you this segment because you've covered this before in the podcast, but the gun barrel. Yeah. So Morris Binder, he had an idea to create the an introduction to the character of Bond uh, through, a, through a gun barrel. And they tried to create it by literally putting a, a camera just down a, a gun barrel, but they were struggling to focus it. So they couldn't actually focus on what was being seen at the other end, which was Bob Simmons, because Connie was unavailable that day. So they got Bob Simmons in to do it. And so Binder created a pinhole camera. And this suddenly brought everything into clear focus. And they were able to capture one of the most iconic things in movie history, I would say. Yeah. I think that's fair, fair to say. And yeah, so they shot it in sepia. Um, and the the rest is history. It's something they're still using to this day. And, in, and if it gets left out, a lot of people have issues, don't they? <laughs> As we've seen in the past. Um, so, yeah, but, but we have covered it in more detail in the, the Morris Binder episode. Another thing that we've covered in quite a bit of detail is the theme song, um, which mm-hmm. we love talking about lawsuits on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Um, but I'm not going to go into too much depth about lawsuits now because we've already done an episode on John Barry and we'll be going on in what, two years to do an episode on Monty Norman. It'll be next year. Um, but Monty Norman was originally invited to write the the film score for Broccoli because he liked his work on a theatre production in 1961 called Bell. But Norman didn't want to do it. He only agreed to go to, to be involved in it because uh, Saltzman allowed him to travel all the way with them to Jamaica sort of holiday which you would take in those days wouldn't you so yeah he he kind of pulled together the bare bones of it the the sort of the, the riff and it's used quite a bit in this film um it's used uh, across the whole of the title sequences as we just said um it's used quite a lot throughout the the scenes in the in the film and this is one of those bond films where he's not really doing anything and the the song is doing all the work he's just walking through an airport the bond song playing if that you took that out it would just be a man walking through an airport. That's it. Um, but it just it just showed. It, I think that's probably for me where the film clicks and it just goes. Oh, I get it now. This is. I know who this guy is. He, if you didn't have that music with Sean Connery, it would have a much harder job as scriptwriters of actually pulling that character together. So Nor- uh, Monty Norman originally pulled the co- composition together. John Barry would then go on to compose the music uh, for many Bond films. Um, but he arranged the Bond th- for, uh, theme from Monty Norman's music, but was uncredited for it. But of course, was credited for arranging music for the film. There's two court cases that have gone on about that theme tune. Um, we talk about those in the other episodes, uh, but I've got a good quote here from David Arnold. And David Arnold is a man who knows about James Bond music. Uh, and he explains the theme tune and says, 
Bebop swing vibe coupled with that vicious, dark, distorted electric guitar. Definitely an instrument of rock and roll. It represented everything about the character you would want. It was cocky, swaggering, confident, dark, dangerous, suggestive, sexy, unstoppable. And he did it in two minutes. Which I think sums it up perfectly. David Arnold knows what he's talking about. Huh. And how integral it is in that very first time he delivers the line, Bond, James Bond. Because that, you know, and that yeah. kicks in. I mean... I was trying to, when I was watching yesterday, I was trying to think what it would be like, because we know that song, it's so ingrained in our heads, more mm. so for us than anyone else, but even as an, just a normal person who's not a massive Bond fan, that, that that music is so ingrained that when you hear it, you just think of Bond. But I, I, I'd love to have felt what it was like to hear that song for the first time without having mm. that association with it and seeing how that, how that felt, because I assume it would be pretty much the same, because it's just such a fantastic song and really just pull everything together. But there's so many parts of this film which are the same. They just work. And it's why the film did so well. And if it didn't have those elements in it, it this film probably would have been a one-off or never did quite so well. Yeah, I think the one thing to mention with Dr. No is that one of the elements doesn't quite work beyond the theme song is the music in the film. It's very different to what we get to, used to in... Uh, <laughs> it's an, oh, some odd choices, it's, it? it's very strange. So like you said, Monty Norman was hired to do the, the, the music and he like you say, flew out to Jamaica with the cast and the crew on in in January. And he it was there he met uh, Chris Blackwell, who I mentioned earlier, this fixer. And he, uh, Chris Blackwell introduced Monty Norman to uh, a band, a local band in Jamaica called Byron Lee and the Dragonairs. And they were famous for playing all the, the, the hotels and the bars in the North Coast hotels. And so they would, Monty Norman then worked with them to perform the Jamaican music that you hear in the film. Uh, and interestingly, I just learned this earlier, their manager uh, of, of Byron Lee, when they were uh, interviewing people to play the musicians in Morgan's Harbour, which is where Bond meets Quarrel, one of the people she interviewed to be a musician in it was Bob Marley. And uh, they, she rejected wow. working or they rejected working with Bob Marley because he was very untidy and crude. <laughs> so <laughs> interestingly, uh, it would have been a bit different, wouldn't it, if we'd seen Bob Marley mm. in this? Uh, Blackwell, um, just while we're talking about him, the, he used the money that he earned on Dr. No to set up Island Records, which obviously went on to become this hugely influ- influential reggae record label. And he sold that in 1989 for £300 million. So, wow. Yeah, so he did pretty well out of that. So the song Under the Mango Tree, that was performed by Diana Coupland and backed by someone called Ernest Wrangling on guitar. And Wrangling plays on several of the other tracks. And the rest of the score was orchestrated by Monty Norman's frequent arranger, Bert Rhodes, who Norman, Monty Norman gave half of his £500 fee to. And it was recorded in the CTS studios in Bayswater, London, uh, in the in the summer of June '62, with a with an orchestra. But none of the orchestrated tracks on the film appear on the soundtrack album. Weirdly, hmm. and also on the soundtrack album, there is uh, a musical theme. Doctor knows uh, in three different orchestrations called Doctor Knows Fantasy, Twisting with James, and the misleadingly titled the James Bond theme, which are not heard anywhere in the film so there's stuff on the soundtrack that's not in the film and there's stuff in the film that's not on the soundtrack it's very bizarre mm-hmm. but i think what the, the the james bond theme i think that was what monty norman intended to be the theme song of the film but it's 
obviously what we got the john barry version of the other song is the one that was was decided on in the end and Um, we've also got the only example of james bond singing ever in a bond film (laughs) which i'd love them to revisit again soon in skyfall the musical yeah it'll happen it'll happen so gonna need something to to promote this film and with the posters so the the the, the early posters i don't know if you've seen these ones it's uh the black and yellow and it's just a bullet and a lipstick and that's it it's pretty uh simple but the reason of that it was uh it was to signal that there is going to be violence and sex you know it's a simple way of doing it this is exciting because everyone's waiting for Bond to make his his screen debut, and then they release a uh, uh, like the official poster, and it's the black and yellow. Um, have you seen Have you seen this one yeah. recently? Yeah, the first James Bond is uh, emblazoned at the top. It's hand drawn by a guy called Mitchell Hooks, and we've we've said in the past how we'd love for them to go back to hand drawn posters because. It just got that classic look about them. And then you've got Joseph uh, Karoff's 007 logo with the the gun uh, and the, the one bullet to signal that this is the first one. So, yeah, and there's there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of international posters that are fan- also fantastic. And Mitchell Hooks did a lot of work on, on those as well. So, yeah, it's uh, got sketches of all the characters that are in it. And, and then Dr. No, it's quite interesting. Dr. No's to the left of the poster and it's just he's just in black and white just standing there half of him it's uh interesting striking definitely very striking okay so moving on to the release of the film and there was a premiere the first ever bond premiere took place at the london pavilion on october the 5th 1962 it's a building that holds nearly 1200 seats um, it's still there. It's part of the Trocadero. Um, so it's like a shopping arcade now, but it used to be a sort of big theatre place. I think it looks the same from the outside. There were five showings of Dr. No over the course of that day, and it started at 10.45 a.m. The people that attended were the people that you'd probably expect to really attend, the, the cast and probably some of Ian Fleming's mates as well. Um, and there was a gala screening in the evening. Not much else to say about the premiere, really. I couldn't find many photos of anything about it. But interestingly, I found a fact that was associated with it, that on the same day, uh, it was when the Beatles released their first single, Love Me Do. There you go. Mm -hmm. Which is a nice little fact if you're interested in the Beatles. Wow. And uh, so Fleming, did Fleming go as well? Yeah. 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 And that's the day that they they now call James Bond Day, isn't it? The 5th of October. Okay, so now the film, um, actually before the premiere, it had actually um, been screened at a trade show at the Odin Haymarket in August earlier in the year, um, which meant that it had been finished um, quite quickly. So it obviously ready for exhibition just 32 weeks after the shooting had begun. So it's quite a quick turnaround for this film and it would be quite similar for the rest of the 1960s Bond films. But so two days after its premiere on October the 7th, Dr. No was released in uh, over 100 cinemas in the UK. And within two weeks, it had spread to 198 venues and where it recouped its production costs. So it went, Mm. it, it was big. It was big at the time. The film moved to a huge cinema on Tottenham Court Road in December that year, where it played on uh, until January the next year. 
And it also played in Odeon Leicester Square um, because the chain rank, the owners of the chain, had to meet its quota of British films. And Harry said that it was playing in Leicester Square that gave the film a massive commercial shot. And he said, we broke every record known. We made 69,000 in the first week and we held the record for 11 years. We played 24 hours a day at £1 a ticket. They never saw such business and most surprised was United Artists. To them, it was a B picture. They hated it. So it was the second highest grossing film in the UK in 1962. And then it opened in Europe as well, where it was a big hit there as well. But in America, I don't know if you know this, but they completely bungled the release. There was discussions with United Artists where they were going to release it uh, and, and gain buzz by releasing it in the in the coasts and gaining buzz and expanding the release from there. And then they, 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 for some reason that was decided against and basically United Artists ended up dumping it in May 1963. So the sort of following year from when we got it in like driving theatres in the south of America. So it never really got a proper release there. So it never opened in New York. It never opened in Chicago. Any any key city never got Dr. No in the theatres. And it played mainly in drive throughs in the south. Um, mm. But it was popular with drive through owners because United Artists did a really great deal on the film so that they would get more cuts of it so it did popular it did well in, in drive-throughs i understand but by that time you know may 63 russia with love had already started shooting so they were confident it was going to be a hit but maybe not so much in the u.s um at that time but yeah we'll come on to what the box office was um a little bit later on ian fleming as 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 we said he was at the premiere he viewed the film and um he described it as being dreadful <laughs> simply dreadful uh, and that that is an opinion that I suspect softened. Um, maybe once he he realised it was a financially a, a success because he visited the set of From Russia with Love and Goldfinger, so he certainly didn't carry that that opinion. I, I don't think it doesn't seem seem to have. But I couldn't really find anything else about what what if he if he'd sort of reappraised that thought. Well, that was his initial thoughts anyway. I thought it was dreadful. <laughs> oh, I imagine he changed his tune when he started getting paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about the sort of critical response of the film when it first came out. We know a little bit about the sort of where it was shown and everything, but it received quite a mixed response when it initially came out. I've got a few references here. Time magazine said, um, it's a blithering, uh, Bond is a blithering bounder and a great big hairy marshmallow. <laughs> Who almost always manages to seem slightly silly. What? Um, <laughs> blimey, I mean, what, have they seen Moonraker? Um, Stanley Kaufman in The New Republic said he felt the film never decides whether it is suspense or suspense spoof. Um, he also didn't like Connery or the Fleming novels. Uh, the Vatican, not sure the Vatican, never seen the Vatican review before, but they condemned Dr. No, describing it as a dangerous mixture of violence, vulgarity, sadism and sex. And the Kremlin said that Bond was the personification of capitalist evil. Both mm. controversies helped. Uh, they actually um, helped the public awareness and actually meant more people watched it at the cinema, which is always the case, isn't it? Yeah, you always want a bad review from the Vatican and the Kremlin. <laughs> but there were good reviews as well. The Daily Express said that Dr. No is a fun, it's fun all the way, and even the sex is harmless. Not a massively positive review, that. The Observer said it was full of submerged self-parody. Game. Not sure that's actually too positive. Uh, Guardian said uh, Dr. No 
It was crisp and well-tailored and a neat and gripping thriller. But in the years that followed, as is the case with many Bond films, the sort of response has changed and people have said a lot more about the film and been a bit more positive about it. A a reviewer called Danny Preary said, uh, it's cleverly conceived adaptation of Ian Fleming's enjoyable spy thriller. It has sex, violence, wit, terrific action sequences and colourful atmosphere. Connery, Anderson, Wiseman all give memorable performances. There's a slow stretch in the middle and uh, and Dr. No could use a decent henchman, but otherwise the film works marvellously. Which I think is true. I mean, it does is a bit of a stretch in the middle. Um, but I think that's a really nice, honest review of what people see of the film these days. Uh, it was ranked uh, 41 on the BFI Top 100 British Films in 1999. Uh, and Rotten Tomatoes has a 95% rating, um, only based on 58 reviews, with an average rating of 9.23. So pretty um, popular nowadays. Yes. And popular then as well. Like I said, it was a box office hit. Not massive, not like Goldfinger numbers as we get to down the line or Thunderball numbers, but... In the United Kingdom, it grossed $840,000 in two weeks and the film ended up grossing in in total $6 million. Obviously, against its $1 million budget is is a huge return on investment uh, there. In North America, the gross uh, was $2 million. Uh, so it recouped a lot more money uh, over the few next few years because it would often play in double bills in american cinemas with you know from rush with love from goldfinger with 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 thunderball it often would be but would be reshown then so it went on to yeah pick up even more money down the line uh did it pick up any awards just the one yeah just a got a golden globe new star of the year uh actress for ursula andrus interesting on that yeah really uh I know. Yeah. Just do a lot of acting in it, does she? <laughs> I think if it's a new well, star it's, award, it's more about y- yeah, being on front covers, isn't it? I think. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. So that about wraps up Dr. No. I mean, obviously, later on got uh, home entertainment releases as well. And we were talking about this the other day, the Blu-ray transfer of this film and the, uh, apparently the 4K transfer as well. I haven't seen it, but it's absolutely stunning. And it, it has never looked better. Yeah. But what, one other thing to note is that Dr. No um, was the first film, as the first film became the first one to get a comic book adaptation as well. So that was, that started to come out in October around the film and that um, was published in the United Kingdom uh, as part of the Classics Illustrated series. And then in the United States, it was uh, printed by DC Comics um, and it was one of the um, that was the first American comic book appearance of James Bond. So that's quite interesting. And then another sort of immediate legacy of Dr. No is that sales of the Ian Fleming novels shot up after the film was released. So um, apparently in the seven months after Dr. No was released, 1.5 million copies of the novel were sold. Um, so that was a, an immediate impact of the film. But beyond that, I mean, the legacy is that it spawned 25 films, right, for us to do in the Million Part podcast series on. Well, uh, that's that's just the Bond legacy. Yeah. I mean, there's a much wider legacy. of Austin in, Powers. In the... <laughs> yeah, not just Austin Powers, but it's it's spawned a whole massive successful genre, genre hasn't it? You know, if that, if that had a flopped, if they'd gone with the monkey, you imagine they'd gone with the monkey. We're not sat here right now, are we? If they've gone monkey. Unless that spawned we'd have, we'd have finished yeah, monkey. probably a year ago, this podcast. <laughs> yeah, unless monkey movies became a thing. Well, yeah. yeah. 
There's a few of them, isn't there? But it's it's you know it it sets the stalls out, doesn't it? It's I, I love watching it, and the more I watch it, the more fond of it I get. I think. Yeah, I think it's phenomenal. I think it's it's just everything in it is just almost perfect i mean to look at it as we often say like oh it's the first film so they're kind of getting their grounding and understanding how to do stuff but i think it's a pretty damn fine film as Mm. it is and i think there's elements of it like sean connery his character for the majority of the film is fan he's full-on bond i mean he's goldfinger bond in it uh, what i love about his character throughout the first three quarters is that he's always ahead of the baddies there's a bit of jeopardy where they're going to kill him. He's ahead of him, kills him. Bit of jeopardy, he's ahead of him, kills him. And that's what you want from Bond. That's the whole point of Bond. He's, he is ahead of them mm. until the big baddie comes at the end and then he's put to his the test. But he's got to be cool all the way through. And I think that they missed that in a lot of the newer ones where he's always struggling and he's never one step ahead of him. And there's, there's, uh, there's like various elements of this film that are so simple. I mean, he hasn't got loads of gadgets in this film, doesn't need them. One of the bits I really like is the where he is in the room and he puts a bit of hair across the door. Yeah. Because I bet school kids at the time watched that and went, oh, I'm going to start doing that on my door because it's so cool. But it does work unless the hair dries and curls up and then it falls off anyway. But the other thing I like about it as well is the dialogue is so tight. It's beautifully written dialogue. And there's it's not wasted. It's not just pointless discussions. There's no... Every one of his sort of this is the birth of the one-liners but the one-liners in this there's a reason for them and i think in this film there's a lot of elements where they were making the, they were scared a lot of people in it were scared because they didn't know if it was going to succeed so they put so much more effort in like they were the dialogue was so tight and beautifully written because they they had to to succeed i think there's a laziness in the later films where they go oh we've got to put one-liners in because that's what bond does whereas in this one they weren't going we've got to put one-liners in because that's what bond does they were going Here's a great line. Let's put this in. So I think there's, I think there's a freshness and a sort of clarity to this film from everything. The Ken Adams, all this stuff. There's no laziness. They've done everything perfectly because they wanted to succeed. Whereas if you look at something like Octopussy, there's lazy stuff in it where they've just gone, Bond does that. Yeah, Bond does that. Yeah, fine, stick that in. But I think this is beautiful. And, and also, I think if this was a one-off film, I think people would look back and go, it's a fantastic film, even if it it was nothing to do with like a full 25 film series. So yeah. I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. Tour de force. Yeah. I think it really benefits from uh, its uh, slender budget as well. Yeah. Because everyone yeah, is like, working at top of their game on a tight they budget. They should do that more often. Just re- yeah. limit their budget and go, look, can you just make this good by thinking about it instead yeah. of just chucking money, money at it. Towards it? Yeah. yeah. It's like when Simon, if you remember when Simon Brew was on talking about Casino Royale, he was saying that, you know, the best Bond films are the ones where they're sort of painted into a corner and they are limited mm. When their options become limited, then that's when people become really creative. Like, look at Skyfall, which had a smaller budget and was could only shoot in the UK. They worked within those constraints to do something really creative. And it's when later on, when they're, uh, you know, able to do whatever they want. Yeah. Like, Dine of the Day, that, Spectre. Yeah. Just, yeah. 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 That, 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 that it becomes too loose, too unfocused. And, yeah. And that this film is, it's tight. You're right, it is. It's, it's, it's superbly paced. And something I always, th- you know, when someone says, oh, it's very Fleming-esque. It's like a very Fleming, you know, you, you think from Russia with love, you think for your eyes only, you think on a Majesty's Secret Service. But this is the probably the closest adaptation of a Fleming book we've got. Yeah. Uh, this and f- from Russia with love, but it sticks really closely 
to the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I also think it, it benefits from the fact that it is not a lot happens because they they everything's done well. Like there's no nothing in that story that's I mean, to extent Ursula Anders, Anders later on is a little bit pointless. Some of the scenes are a little bit Hollywood where they want to show off her in various... Being know, sprayed down. Being sprayed down and stuff. Mm-hmm. When you look at it and go, you don't really need that. But it, it's, it's not a lot in here that is a bit... Even the end sequence, that whole thing with Dr. No is so quick. Like if that was... Like, Dams are forever. The end sequence lasts for absolutely ages and you don't need it. He basically sneaks in turns the thing off, Dr. No comes to get him and he kills him and then he dis- escapes and, and gets in the boat. That's all you need. You don't need to have some stupid, mm. long, drawn-out 40-minute sequence where there's loads of different people. So yeah, I think it just benefits from all those things and from Rush With Love and Goldfinger, I think benefited or, or, or succeeded because they understood what worked on Dr. No and took those elements and I think over time, people forgot about the elements of Dr. No Although Casino Royale, I think, does get closer to that sort of simplicity in a, in a modern style. And when, when Barbara Rockley says, go back to Fleming, they probably go back to Dr. No as well and go, this is what worked from this one, and then make sure we do yeah. it again. But I'd love to see more simplicity in the, in the Bond films going forward. Yeah, and the real world locations, like you mentioned earlier, really do this film a lot of favours. It's, it's got a very specific place um, in, in, in the world and, and time. So... Shall we look at the official James Bond A to Z rankings and see where Dr. No slots in for us? Yep. 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 So at the moment, we've done five films in, in alphabetical order. At uh, number five is Casino Royale 67. At number four is Diamonds Are Forever. At number three is Die Another Day. At number two is A View to a Kill. And at number one is Casino Royale 2006. So for me, it's it, it's... It's simple. This is this is at number two. This is not quite as good as Casino Royale, but it's better than all of the other ones. What do you think? Interesting. I would put it at number one out of those. Yeah, I'm having uh, number one all the way. I think it's miles above Casino Royale. Wow. I agree. Wow. Don't get me wrong. I love Casino Royale. I think it's fantastic. But Doctor No, for me, is is Bond. Yeah. I, 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 I hadn't watched Doctor No for a while until I watched it yesterday. And I remember liking it, but I enjoyed the whole thing. The whole way through, I enjoyed it. And whenever we watch some of the other Bond films, I enjoy them a bit, but then there's bits I don't really like. But this yeah. one, just couldn't stop watching it. Just enjoyed it yeah. the whole way. And at the end, I thought that was just fantastic and no problems with it at all. It's got a great Felix Leiter. I like Quarrel. I just, yeah. I, I just, it's just it, great, it, isn't it? it yeah. yeah, it's it's fantastic. And uh, yeah, I'd e- easily put yeah. it. They should have stopped there. <laughs> the only, uh, in, in my defense, I would say Casino Royale is a more crowd pleasing movie. If, if you were to yes. put it on at home with mm. a crowd or an audience, then I think you'd get a better response with Casino Royale. That's personally why I would put Casino Royale over it. But, you know, this is a democracy. You two have outvoted me. So Dr. No goes in at number one. We've got a new number one. Nice. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, so. Yeah, let's let's wrap things up. We will follow this episode up uh, with another episode talking about Doctor No. Uh, we've got an actual academic coming on to talk about Doctor No, so that's exciting. Some, somebody who actually knows something <laughs> talking to us. <laughs> but if people want to share their opinions on Doctor No or anything we've talked about on this show, how do they email us? Podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. And if they want to get us on social, at jamesbondatoz, but on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, but not if it's about strange ways. <laughs> just, just saying 
Well, we're not going to read out all the people that are going to complain about me, my pronunciation. We would be doing this every week. You'll be reading them all out. If... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chris says it's Strangways. <laughs> Mike in Bolton says it's Strangways. <laughs> it's not even a discussion. I don't know what you're going on about, Strang- Strange yeah. Ways. <laughs> <laughs> Just misread it. <laughs> you wait till the next film we do. I'll get a few names wrong in that as well. <laughs> yes, so... Come back next week and we will be talking about, yeah, Dr. No again. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been the James Bond A to Z podcast that James Bond A to Z will return. Cheers, guys. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.